0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. Hope you are all doing well. Today, I'm going to be going over a recent blog post that I put out called The Coming Multipolar World. I have a kind of unique vision on where I see or how I see the world developing through deglobalization, ending of credit-based money, adoption of Bitcoin, so on and so forth. I do think there is a coming multipolar world, but we will go through that. So I'm going to read through that article and uh, uh, go from there, tangents included. So let me share my screen. This is the website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. Go there for all of my content. I put out a free weekly newsletter on Monday, including a premium newsletter that goes out on Fridays. Um, and what else? We have a monthly a price forecasting competition that is available to paid members. So if you'd like to support my content, participate in that, get early access to my blog posts and all of that stuff, you can become a paid member over on BitcoinandMarkets.com. And I appreciate everybody that supports. Also, my highest supporting tier includes a a once-a-month call uh, with me personally for 30 minutes. We can talk about any questions you have. Um, You know, if you are talking to somebody and you want to know how I would answer a certain question or whatever, very specifically, uh, we can have that 30 minute call and go over whatever you want to talk about. So uh, that is open on the website as well. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Before we jump into the blog post, let's take a quick look at the price chart. I did share this earlier with Telegram. By the way, I am live streaming on YouTube, Rumble, Twitter, and Telegram. Telegram is tme forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. That's where I do most of my chatting throughout the day with the guys over there. I appreciate everyone that partakes in the community. Okay. Let's get back to what we came here for today. And that is the coming multipolar world. I have this BTM, uh, BTCM research that used to be a separate website and I have since consolidated it. Uh, I put most of my blog posts, things where I dive a little bit deeper into certain topics On this uh, BTCM research, Uh, but this is the coming multipolar world, the one I'm looking at, and I'll zoom in a little bit for people to see this better. So, subtitle is, there are competing theories of what the coming multipolar world will look like. This is my synthesis of views. The Ukraine war is not going well for the West. We cannot predict the exact way in which this war will end, but what's certain is this war will eventually end. One way or another, and it will likely begin a massive geopolitical realignment. Different views: the U.S. has dominated global affairs for decades. You can call it the U.S.-led order or U.S. hegemony, but most experts believe that time—sorry, uh, most experts believe that time is coming to an end. The U.S. no longer has that kind of unilateral power. If the West is defeated in Ukraine, under U.S. leadership, it will be the end of U.S. hegemony. A new multipolar world is rising. There are competing theories of what a multipolar world will look like. Below are three commonly held views and my synthesis that tries to blend classical geopolitics, realism, and rhyme more with history. The first and most widely held view is that China is a peer competitor to the U.S. and will be the leading pole opposite the U.S. in a new Cold War. This view became viral among Western academics in 2012 with the publication of Graham Allison's first Thucydides Trap article. And I do have a couple uh, podcast episodes specifically about the Thucydides Trap and debunking it, but... Um, Anyway, a rising China has also become very popular amongst U.S. detractors. And this is like some of the people I listen to uh, for updates on the war in Ukraine. They are very anti-U.S., anti-West. I think they are really anti-globalist, you know, anti-Davos. But they don't make that distinction between the West and Davos, where I do. And you'll see uh, that going forward here. So uh, they're they're very anti-West. And so they are by default kind of pro-China and pro-Russia, thinking that they are this rising power. But uh, so those, uh, those are the people that uh, I call U.S. detractors. I say they have U.S. derangement syndrome, naively blaming all the world's ills on U.S. hegemony. And you also see this in the Bitcoin space a lot. Um, people like the ones I was just talking about conflate Davos and the West, uh, Bitcoiners often conflate the U S dollar credit-based system with the West. They're not the same. Uh, the dollar is not even the same as the credit-based system. Uh, the Euro dollar versus the dollar is not the same system. Um, for example, the dollar has been backed by many things. Gold, silver, bimetallic standard, different gold standard than free-floating. Um, but the euro dollar has never been backed by anything, it's always been purely a credit-based system. Uh, and so there are differences between the dollar and the US, and even the euro dollar and the US dollar. Um, so anyway, let's keep going. However, since COVID exposed global risk of supply chains, and the US-China trade war has exposed structural flaws in the Chinese economic miracle, the fantasy of a rising and invincible China has been broken. The BRICS, Russia, Russia, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are the newest counterweight du jour. Russia is fighting in Ukraine, allied with China for now, and selling energy to the most populated countries in the world. If China's economic model needs robust international trade to continue, the BRICS seem to offer an answer. Russia as a source for China's inputs and export markets in India and Brazil. Of course, this common view has major issues, both economic and geopolitical, which I'll discuss below. Another important multipolar view to consider going down a spectrum from largest distribution of power to smaller. So BRICS being the largest kind of distribution of a polar power uh, to a smaller distribution of polar power. uh, That would be the geopolitical realists like the famous John Mearsheimer. He says the world is moving away from the U.S.-led, Western-dominated era to an era of relatively equal balance between three poles of the U.S., Russia., and China. And let me make sure I'm going out on everything. Yes. And unmute. I, I, I get these sinking feelings every once in a while that I'm not going out. But, okay, notice he does not involve South America or Africa in his view of power politics. So realist John Mearsheimer talks about three poles, U.S., Russia, and China. But leaves out a big chunk of the world. Another view is that espoused by more classical geopolitical thinkers like Peter Zion? And I know Zion is not very popular in Bitcoin circles. I don't agree with pretty much any of his political stuff, but his geo, his geography side of geopolitics, uh, which is where geopolitics originally came from, you know, with Mackinder and the Heartland theory and all that stuff. Um, So Peter Zion is in that thread, I would say, of classical geography side of geopolitics, but I don't agree with his political side. But um, yeah, so his his classical view is he does not see other regions being able to match the U.S. economically or militarily in the foreseeable future. He also sees some traditional regional powers becoming more powerful within a second tier but none rivaling the U S and in that case, it would be like he sees France kind of dominating Western Europe, Turkey kind of dominating the middle East. Um, What else? Uh, India. He said, he says, India will always be India. Uh, It's been going on for thousands of years. It'll continue to go on for thousands of years, but it's never going to be a global leader per se. Um, He famously thinks China is going to break up the, you know, the end of the Chinese civilization almost uh, i don't go that far but um you know he that's that's kind of what he's talking about there's going to be the us and then some second tier powers i'll say so this is okay so this is my synthesis of views in my view all these theories view the players as too monolithic each country consists of numerous interest interests and power groups it's overly simplistic to talk about U.S. hegemony or the West, China, too, is a vast country that has complex power structure and rival groups. One of the things in China is the Shanghai group. Uh, that's I think that's where Xi comes. He he comes from the um, kind of outskirts of Shanghai, but he came up within the Shanghai political system. And so you have like, obviously, Beijing, you have Shanghai as another kind of power structure, uh, center. Um, there's probably some in the Southern, like, uh, around, you know, the, uh, Yangtze not, well, I guess the Yangtze goes out at Shanghai, but maybe inland like Sichuan might have some sort of political power group, right? So there's all of these different groups within China. There's also some that might lean more capitalistic and some that might lean more Marxist. So there's all sorts of different power groups and structure within, a single country so it's too over simplistic to talk about us the west china you know as these big monolithic blocks okay it's not enough to say the us is global hegemon you must ask which group within the us is in power same for china the ccp is different than china if they become hegemon, does that mean the CCP remains in power, or does that require a less communistic government, a communist government, to take control? If we go back to 1945, it becomes clear that factions within a country can seize power and rapidly tip the tables of global power, then just as rapidly be defeated and replaced, redrawing the map. And not just 1945, but you know, go back to. Uh, uh, 33 in Germany, and how fast the change of powers came. the the tot- The tables of global power were tipped. Uh, there was major war. It was defeated, replaced, redrawing the map by 1945. So that's a pretty fast rise and fall. Okay, and we could see similar changes. One thing I've said a lot too is that. Uh, bef- right before my lifetime, um, in the mid 20th century, from say 1945 to when were all the African um, independence movements done around in the 60s, right? And of course, you have India in there as well um, in the late 40s. So you the, a lot of the global map borders were redrawn in a very short period of time. Many people look at the world and they think that can't happen today. Well, it definitely can happen and it will. That's like a guarantee that in the future, borders will massively change. So we can't just discount that there's not going to be massive border changes in the the next 20 years. It's very possible. Um, Okay. The current West has radically changed in the last 30 years becoming internally dominated by global Marxists and losing touch with our core Western liberal values. It is the global Marxists in Brussels and Washington with their Gnostic beliefs of human perfection who are failing, not the West. It is the global Marxists that are in control. There are the small group within the political system of the West that is in control. And they are the ones that are failing, not the West itself. Um, And here's Klaus Schwab, of course, and this is when he's like, we've penetrated, Uh, we penetrate the cabinets. That's what he said. Uh, I go into more detail below, but when the global Marxists are defeated, it will not be the fall of the U.S. and the West. It will be a rebirth. The common view above is some other great power must rise to rival the West, when in fact it is the new West. That is rising, and the current iteration of leaders who are falling. The West is both rising and falling at the same time because of this, uh, you know, the different groups of political power and structure within the massive West. I put out another, uh, I put out an image this morning on Twitter, and let me just pull up my Twitter profile real quick. Don't want to take too much time here, but uh, share this tab. Uh, this is this kind of uh, well known crazy pie chart of the global economy with the US sitting here with the biggest chunk and then China. And I say if China's economic model is failing and it took them three decades to get where they are, starting with low debt and booming demographics. Who can challenge U.S. dominance over the next several decades? Who's going to step up and rival the United States? The only answer that is possible is a group of nations. Okay. A group of nations. But uh, what was my point? Let me see. Going back on this. Uh, oh, yeah. So the West, if you look at this, the West is the U.S., Japan is in there, uh, U.K., Italy, France, Germany, all these big most of the big sections are the West. It is large enough to have two competing power structures. So these two, like the multipolar world doesn't have to be uh, a pole outside of the U S or the West that rises. It could be that the Western uh, and the U S split into two poles. And that's kind of what I'm trying to describe here uh, in this piece, but let's keep, continue here China and Russia cannot rise people wrongly see a false dichotomy that a declining west must be offset by a rising China or Russia this is not the case as the west experiences internal fights their global influence and police power will wane leaving room for the weaker states to pursue their geopolitical goals Russia uh, China and Russia are not rising the west is distracted by internal political battles both China and Russia and and we know this because of the rise of populism, you know, the rise of populism around the world, and it's particularly in the West, but we, and, I mean, we do see it in Japan, which I kind of consider part of the West, even though it is East, and India, Modi is a populist uh, leader, so there are, and of course, Putin is a populist leader. But in the West, we're seeing this populism rise all over the place. And that is a sign of the West is being distracted by internal politics. It's not necessarily that China and Russia are rising. (laughs) Excuse me. Both China and Russia have massive demographic cliffs coming. Russia has been below replacement fertility since 1970, people. The life expectancy of males is 65 and many of their engineers and scientists are near retirement or left after the USS fell, USSR fell, not, uh, not all, but much of the natural resource industry is run by Western companies, engineers, and scientists, because they just have no, you know, natural born sign or they have very few left. They all work for the Western companies. So Russia not only has a demographic problem; they have a problem where their engineers and scientists are either leaving or close to this life expectancy age. It's it's not good. And here is the total fertility in Russia. You can see 1970; it fell down below replacement. Kind of peaked out here in 1990 with the fall of the. USSR, but quickly dove back down, it's kind of making a recovery. But overall, you know, even if this goes above replacement, let's say in the next 10 years, it manages to get back above replacement. Those kids born are not going to become engineers and scientists for 20, 30 years down the road. 40 at their most productive, right? So we're talking 2030 plus 40. So 2070 before the next group could even like come in to save it. And we're trying to figure out what's going to happen 2030 and 2040. Like this, this is a long, long term problem. All right. China is in worse shape. Russia at least has a balance between men and women of childbearing age. China, on the other hand, after decades of one child policy has many fewer females. Of childbearing age, men outnumber women by roughly 11%. That means the replacement fertility rate is higher than countries with equal numbers of men and women. Because uh, it, this is hard to explain, but you know, obviously the women are the ones that need to have the babies. And so um, if you have fewer women per men, you're having to replace more men the women are having to replace more men to just to keep it even. So the fertility rate is actually per woman needs to be much higher. So if if you measure this by um, population, the fertility rates 2.1 for sustainable, you know, uh, for population. But if, if you don't have, if you look at it and you have fewer women by 11% fewer women, those women need to have way more kids per woman to have the replacement rate. And I I tried to do some back of the napkin math on this. With a significant number of fewer females, each female would need to have more children to reach a total population replacement number. I haven't run the numbers, but a replacement rate for China might be as high as 2.3 instead of 2.1 for balanced populations. That means the current 1.6, or sorry, 1.16, geez, 1.16 is their fertility rate right now. It's half of what it needs to be is even further negative. Fewer people having fewer kids snowballs on itself below replacement. The further you go below replacement, the faster the decline at 1.16, the population decline is going to be shockingly fast. And I just saw a new statistic this morning. Um, The brand new statistic out of Hong Kong is 1.09. So it's even further down Below one point one six, it continues to fall. I mean, the West is not in that much better shape. Germany is in horrible shape. France is in okay shape. The U.S. is in relatively good shape compared to all the other major economies. You have to start going down into some non-major economies, you know, developing markets that you start seeing three, four. On the, I think Nigeria is still up there at like five or something. I mean, so there are some places that are having a lot of kids and they're going to have this demographic dividend, but the opposite is going to be true for China. China is the worst possible demographics you can have. The worst we've ever seen. Um, all right. China's f- fertility rate has decreased precipitously in recent years, despite losing the one child policy. So 1980, the one child policy goes into effect. Uh, then in, in 2016, they whoop change that (laughs) we need a two child policy kept falling oh we need a three child policy and we just saw the updated numbers out of hong kong it's continuing to fall even though they're changing these policies they're probably going to have to direct them to have kids but like i said um those kids that are born next year they're not going to reach peak productivity for 40 years you know this has already been baked in the cake. The next 40 years of population has already occurred. And I don't think people understand that. Um, this isn't the only problem with China. Obviously, they are communist with a directed economy, but they're also wholly dependent on a, on the current system not changing. They not only need vast amounts of imports, including food, they also must sell their products to the rest of the world they need customers and the customer is always right even in international trade the customer is always right ghost cities are one thing but cranking out massive amounts of products from the factories must be sold somewhere academics and, and you can't just say oh we're going to ship them all to india india's got a lot of people because they need to be able to buy them okay Not, you don't just need bodies you actually need bodies with money to buy your goods. It doesn't it doesn't work. I mean, communists obviously don't understand this that they they need customers with money to buy their goods. Um but anyway, academics in China are now are just now starting to talk openly about a wholesale reworking of their economic model. They now realize they must move away from production to consumption. A move many countries have attempted and almost all fail. With a communist command economy and a rapidly shrinking population, this shift to consumption-led economy is impossible. China is simply not a viable superpower in 10 years. Okay, the United States poll. As I've stated, the typical view of a declining West, (coughs) excuse me, I'm still trying to get over this little cold here. As I've stated, the typical view of a declining West and a and rising bricks, or individually Russia and China, is too monolithic in structure. Power and countries do not work like that. We must think of shifting internal politics as well as geopolitics. The West was built on classical liberal values, individualism, property rights, and capitalism. However, over the past few decades, the capitalists were swayed by their traditional enemy, the global Marxists, to make seemingly small marginal changes to laws and structure. The globalists used the liberal slogans of equity and anti-discrimination to sneak in anti-liberal policies. And it worked because economic growth was robust. The capitalists were drunk on success and globalization They didn't notice their dream of opening the world to free trade had been hijacked by the global Marxists. Today, the economy has soured with the end of a long-term debt cycle. And if you guys know my content, I talk about that all the time. This is the the end of a 75-year global credit bubble. That's what this is. Uh, The end of the story is deflation, not inflation. Robust growth has turned into a rolling financial crisis. The Marxists have become entrenched in academia, the media, and government. They flex their control muscles with the recent issue that we had here, coordinating a shutdown of the global economy, which shook the capitalists out of their delusion. So I think that's true. I think what happened in 2020 through 2021 and 2022, um, shutting down the global economy, that actually woke up the capitalists. And that's why we've seen uh, Wall Street. I think, turning against these globalists. Um, Jerome Powell is a, I would say, an anti-globalist. He's stiff-arming CBDCs. He's stiff-arming climate change policies. He's stiff-arming all of this stuff. He works for Wall Street. The Federal Reserve is owned by Wall Street banks. And so that is, they've woken up, I think. COVID made them wake up uh, from their uh, Marxist delusion. So... Lockdowns, ESG, DEI, struggle sessions, fiery but peaceful protests, and financial weaponization finally woke people up. That last one is the straw that broke the camel's back, in my opinion, and it's financial weaponization. All the talk about a CBDC, its total lack of benefit other than greater political control, spooked the capitalists on Wall Street to begin extricating the globalists from the West. So we have a Major elite-on-elite elite competition going on. The two poles here are the Davos globalists and kind of Wall Street, Main Street coalition. The true cost of this Marx, of these Marxist policies are now being felt as the economy is simply not strong enough anymore to absorb them. Like anyone getting backed into a corner, the globalists are fighting back. They are going full speed ahead, trying to not only secure their position positions geopolitically but also defeat their detractors domestically and we see this all over the west you know demonizing le pen all far right far right far right far right everybody's far right this stuff with javier milly i think is i don't know how you pronounce his last name down there in argentina far right even though he's like a libertarian he's far right um everybody they don't agree with is far right so they are uh not only fighting geopolitically in like Ukraine, but also they're fighting domestically against their detractors. This battle is what people feel as the decline of the West. So them fighting these geopolitical battles and fighting their domestic detractors, that's what they, what we feel is the decline of the West. And you've heard that probably, I'm sure the decline of Western civilization, yada, yada, yada. No, what we're, what we're, seeing is the decline of the globalists just one power group within the west uh, this happened many times you know people would have said world war ii's II decline of the west or something like that uh, people living in, in uh, 1848 you know mid 19th century 1848 in europe 19 uh, 1865 in uh, the us massive you know sea changes people would have thought this was the end of western civilization but it wasn't, and it's not now either. What we're feeling is this battle between shifting blocks, uh, political blocks within the West. Um, And so then people falsely will think this is the end stage of liberalism, which it is not. The Ukraine war is a way to bring Europe to heel under globalist led US protection. And I don't have time to break this down 100% right now, but um, maybe I'll have to come back and readdress this because I do have a hard stop here in 10 minutes. So I'll try to get through this. The Nord Stream pipeline, sabotaging an early peace deal, draining NATO weapons stockpiles all these things make Europe more vulnerable, more dependent on the US, and weaker in general. Weaker economies and despondent people are easier to control. Marxists always think in terms of breaking people down to control them. Western sanctions also had the added benefit in their eyes of harming the Russian economy. The aim was to bring everyone down. These are two poles which initially emanate from the U.S. in the coming multipolar world. One is the Wall Street capitalist. This is the rising class. I should have put Wall Street and Main Street because I do think this is the people. And we'll get into this in a second. Uh, Wall Street and the capitalists and Davos Marxists. Those are the two powers that are emanating from the West in my, my system. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The populace is a third group in the U.S. The U.S. social fiber is heavily freedom-oriented, matching perfectly with capitalism, but it does lean toward a national identity with some collectivist ideals, like collective bargaining, charity, and communities of faith that might grow into a conflict later down the road with the capitalists but not now. Populism is on the rise around the world as a reaction to global socialism, not liberalism. While the US populists are not perfectly aligned with Wall Street, they are both polar opposites of Marxism. And I guess they can't be both polar opposites, but they are both opposites of Marxism. Populism and uh, capitalism would both be against Marxism. This is why both the populists and Wall Street will join forces to get rid of them. Populism takes different forms in different countries. We see populism on the rise globally, and in the U.S., it leads towards isolationism. There is a whole Wikipedia page, so let me just read some of this. United States non-interventionism primarily refers to the foreign policy that was eventually applied by the United States between the late 18th century, or when we were founded, and the first half of the 20th century, or until World War I, basically, whereby it sought to avoid alliances with other nations in order to prevent itself from being drawn into wars that were not related to the direct territorial defense of the United States. Neutrality and non-interventionism found support among elite and popular opinion in the U.S., which varied depending on the international context and the country's interests. At times, the degree and nature of this policy was better known as isolationism, such as the interwar period. So even after World War I, um it took a, a lot to get us into World War II, and we just came in, you know, um, well, we really came in at the end of World War I. We came in a little bit earlier in World War II, but, um, you know, th- it was very non-interventionist. Uh, if you would ask somebody in 1900 if we would have 195 bases or whatever it is around the world, they would say you're crazy because that is like directly opposite of our natural inclination here in the United States. The US will swing back to non intervention with a core number of close allies, which will destroy the Chinese economic model. Okay, so uh, non intervention and deglobalization that will destroy the Chinese economic model and that'll give space for more major wars, and leave much of Europe out to dry. Marxist regroup elsewhere. This won't be the end of the Marxists. It will take a generation to take back the universities and other institutions, but the writing is on the wall. It failed in the USSR. It's failing in the West, which will lead to it failing in the Communist Chinese Communist Party as well. It will morph once again, not go away. <coughs> Excuse me again. Most likely, Third-tier nations will be too weak to stave off the Marxists going there and taking over. With the U.S. rededicating itself to non-interventionism, it will not intervene in small countries to save them from the Marxist takeover. Therefore, I see the possibility of a new crop of Marxist countries in coming decades, consisting of disparate states. Venezuela, Cuba, Chile, Spain, some African countries, Laos, Vietnam, North Korea, and maybe part of a broken China. The Marxists get chased out of the West, creating a second poll, basically a collection of dangerous failing states. They will have outsized influence because the U.S. will not intervene. They will be wild and bully their neighbor countries. They will also be some of the countries with the best demographics so they can infiltrate through immigration. So that's one of the polls there. The third poll. There are two other viable polls left in the world. Other than the U.S., Wall Street, and Marxists, it will start with the. Uh, I will start with the BRICS, or perhaps an altern, altered version of the BRICS, and then go on to Europe. Yes, we have to bring the BRICS back into the discussion, despite Russia and China demographics. If <clears throat> uh, demographics, if you put them together, they make a formidable force. Many countries are applying for BRICS membership. It is a growing coalition with a combined economy that is now larger than the G7. I do not believe that the CCP will remain, maintain its current form for much longer. There are simply too many headwinds for communists to overcome without massive social unrest and oppression. China is allied with Russia for now, but they are natural enemies as both land powers in Asia. If the CCP survives the next five to ten years, where... Where can they turn for more resources and a patriotic war? Japan, a close US ally, out of the question. India as well. That leaves the stands Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Turkmenistan, or Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, with their vast natural resources. The only problem is they're close allies of Russia uh, to varying degrees. I think it is likely that the CCP and Russia will have a conflict in the coming decade. So they will stay allied through this Ukraine war. Then you'll start seeing some um, tensions in their relationship. This will for- force the BRICS to choose Russia or China, and they will choose Russia. That swings the CCP into the group of Marxist nations if it doesn't collapse. the Russia And Russia becomes leader of the BRICS. European poll. Where does this leave Europe? There are several geopolitical theories for the uh, progression of Europe post-European Union. I think it goes without saying that the EU will break up in the next two decades, but we'll see. (laughs) They are out of money and weapons, with the prospect of deindustrialization thanks to the globalists. As the globalists are chased out, there will be nothing holding the old system together. In my initial commentary on this version of a multipolar world, I did not include Europe. But I think it is in, it is important because they're unlikely to join the BRICS, the U.S. or the Marxists. Let's quickly analyze a few countries to get an idea of the whole situation in Europe. The first is Turkey. Turkey sits at the at the naturally powerful geopolitical or sorry geographical location. The sits at a naturally powerful geographical location. It has two millennia of history controlling the near East, uh, Bulgaria and Greece. The last hundred years has been an ebb in their power, but they will rise again soon enough. They are also a natural fit for the BRICS. So I expect them to join with Russia as a leader of the Muslim, Muslim faction of that group. As the EU crumbles, I can see France attempting to form a replacement union with other Western European partners. France has the most congruent land area and best military in Europe. The long-term divide along the Rhine Rhine will come back. Roughly west and south of the Rhine will likely be a group, perhaps led by France and Italy, with interests in North Africa and the Mediterranean. This would include the Low Countries, perhaps retaining Brussels as the capital of a Western European Union. Germany, or more generally, northern and eastern Europe's history is more decentralized with many small kingdoms and dukedoms, the trade cities of the Hanseatic League, Poland, Danzig, and the Baltic states, not to mention the Carpathian Basin, and down into the Balkans. East of the Rhine is going to be interesting with swapping alliances to the west and east. And out of all these things, I have the, less, the least clear Grasp of what will happen to Europe. I'm very confident on China. I'm very confident on the US. Europe is kind of the least confidence, I guess. Unlike the typical multipolar world we hear about with static borders and obvious rivalries, the real multipolar world emerging in the next couple of decades is going to split between one, the US and close allies, two, a Marxist league or globalist league. Uh, They might be also types that try to keep the UN and the IMF going. Uh, The U.S. and Wall Street won't do that. The BRICS and a new Europe. The four poles will not be equal. The U.S. will continue to be the heavyweight, but concern itself much less with the wider world. The burdens of the last 75 years will be lifted from the domestic economy and culture. Its share of global GDP will likely grow from 20% to roughly one-third. The other three poles will be left to their own devices, fighting amongst themselves in an uneasy parity. International institutions like the UN, IMF, and WHO will go away or be revamped, maybe by the global Marxists. New institutions and a new money will need to be set up to support the period of deglobalization and multipolarity. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. So that's all I have for this one, guys. I am hitting a hard stop. Sorry about that. I thought I would have more time, but I must be a slow reader. So, thank you for hanging out today. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com. Check out uh, all the places that I'm uh, streaming and my community on Telegram t.me for slash bitcoin and markets. Uh, last thing to uh, YouTube and Rumble, guys, give me a thumbs up, share the content out so more people can find this. And that's all, guys. See you on the next one. Bye.